Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Acadia Broadcasting Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. David, one of the big challenges that this region has faced forever is access to capital. And, uh, you know, things seem to be changing in a positive way in that regard. We had a really good conversation with Rob Normando, Managing Director and CEO of Seaforth uh, Capital, uh, a private equity company. Uh, there's a few of them around, but they're still quite rare. Uh, they just uh, came out with uh, their new fund that's uh, approaching $200 million uh, to invest, not just regionally, but across the country. But the fact of the matter is, this is a regionally based uh, private equity company, uh, and uh, we don't have a lot of those. And in fact, I would say that Rob and uh, Rob's company, along with a few others, including Founders East, which is the Colin McDonald uh, uh, company and Sandpiper, who we've had on this uh, podcast, are, are developing an ecosystem for uh, capital to invest in companies who are either interested in growing their business or selling their business. And in fact, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have Rob on the podcast. I'd seen him at the Rens conference that we were both presenting at recently, and he talked. Uh, he did a presentation on uh, on this whole issue of uh, whether you should uh, sell or or buy uh, or, or 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 grow your company. So this is a bit of a tutorial for anybody is in the position of thinking about the future of their company, and we cover a lot of topics that are uh, pertinent to that decision. And I personally really enjoyed this uh, this conversation. It was really useful for many aspects. Yeah, I mean, I see, I see a real role for private equity. It's it's what I would call a growth accelerant. So they're really looking at firms that they can invest capital in and then grow the business. Right? He told he was very clear they didn't they personally don't want to invest in businesses just to harvest cash flow. They want to grow the business. And so in many ways, private equity is a growth accelerant. And a lot of businesses historically in Atlantic Canada wanted a bootstrap growth. They'd get a little money from government or they'd, they'd fund yeah. growth through cash flow. And what private equity does is it comes along and it says, we're going to infuse a pile of cash to help you uh, turbocharge your growth into the future. And I think that, uh, you know, if you aggregate that up, that's a real growth accelerant. Hopefully will help the region grow. Um, um, by investing in these, in these, you know, not small firms, Don. There, he's looking at what did he say, EBITDA of four to ten million. So that's not a small firm. No, There's enough of them around. I think that it could really help uh, help uh, inject capital into our economy. Yeah, the other thing that I found interesting is that typically private equity firms have a kind of a seven to ten year horizon for investments. They have a slightly longer. Uh, uh, look at uh, investing, you know, the current firm has a 12-year term on it as an example. So they have a little bit longer uh, point of view. But, um, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting model that they have uh, they have started. And uh, one of the things that I've personally experienced, as you know, is I've gone through both selling and buying a business in the last couple of years. And uh, so I can relate to a lot of the uh, issues that uh, Rob uh, pointed out. Uh, I did a management buyout. Uh, it was always my preferred way of uh, you know, selling my business and it worked out well in my case. And there are some tricks to making that work. Um, we can talk about that at some other point. But you know, I've also been in the process of uh, buying a, a company recently um, and also looking at other companies but not able to make a deal. 
And the reason that we weren't able to make a deal in, in the other cases is that the owner had an overinflated, uh, you know, value of his business. And um, and so one of the pieces of advice that Rob has uh, indicated in our conversation, which I think everybody, every business owner should do, is get a proper business valuation of, of the value of your enterprise. You know, understand how value comes out of your business, and then you can maybe work to increase that value before you're ready to sell. But you need to understand that valuation is based on cash, what, what is called free cash flow. And why is that important? Because that is the money that's used to pay back the purchase price. And, you know, people only these days don't want to, you know, spend much more time than, you know, five or six years getting their money back. Uh, so that gives you an indication of how you could value your business. But I would really encourage anybody listening who owns their business who's thinking about a transition that they should get a professional evaluation done of their business. Absolutely. This is a good tutorial. We discuss a lot of those issues as well as at a macro level, what industries he likes and opportunities he likes here in the region. So worthwhile for an hour of your time. Yeah. So with that introduction, uh, here's our conversation with Rob Normandol, the Managing Director and CEO of Seaforth Capital. We are pleased to have Rob Normando, the managing partner and president of Seaforth Capital, as our guest today on the Insights Podcast. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Don. We'd like to begin today by finding out more about your background. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your career path, where you were born, and so on, and how you ultimately ended up in your present role as CEO of Seaforth Capital? Happy to, David. So uh, I'm originally from Ontario. I grew up in southwestern Ontario, in a community called Sarnia, um, which is about an hour north of Detroit on the U.S. border. Um, studied at Western for my undergrad, which is the closest university to home, and then continued on to University of Toronto, studied law and business. Um, ended up articling, uh, so doing my lawyer training at one of the big Toronto-based law firms, which was a great experience for me, you know, very eye-opening. Um, didn't have a lot of exposure to the profession or frankly to, you know, to the corporate environment prior to that, but really enjoyed that. Um, once I was admitted to the bar, uh, I had the opportunity to join a U.S. firm. So uh, a couple of the large Manhattan-based law firms had very strong clientele in Canada, and um, they were helping them with cross-border issues. They wanted some corporate lawyers that were licensed in, in the U.S. to be set up in Canada and sort of act as a as a local uh, uh, shop to help them with some of those larger transactions. So that was a great opportunity. I wrote the New York State Bar exam and then joined that large U US-based firm. Uh, so I spent a fair bit of time in New York, but was based in Toronto. And we had a great group of clients, you know, companies like Air Canada, like Potash Corporation, like Research in Motion when they were still Research in Motion. Um, and, you know, primarily you know, we were helping those large companies access U.S. capital markets. So get listed on NYSE or NASDAQ and raise capital in the U.S. and then helping uh, U.S. firms acquire Canadian businesses. So that was that practice. Um, stuck with that for about four and a half years. Again, really narrow focus, great learning environment for me, really enjoyed it, but my plan was always to get into business. And so, you know, approaching the five-year mark in, in the practice of that specialty area of law, started to look around for opportunities um, came across an opportunity to join 
a relatively early stage firm based in Halifax, uh, of all places, in a senior role, and um, and that's what led me to Halifax. So I joined that company called Clark in spring of 2005. I worked at that company for a number of years and in, in, um, started in a fairly senior role, but had the opportunity to advance through to the president of that company um, and then left that firm to start Seafort in 2012. So um, we're going to talk about Seafort, but can you tell us how your legal training has helped you in your career, especially in your current role? Yeah, so I, I talked a little bit about the, you know, the really f- narrow f- uh, focus that I had in, in the practice of law. So if you think about corporate finance, what you're really doing is you're helping companies raise capital. To do that, you need to tell the story of the company. And so a lot of it is writing disclosure, which doesn't sound all that interesting. But, you know, you go through a series of iterations. You might do, say, a dozen financings in a six-month period. What you're really doing is learning an industry, learning the competitive environment, uh, doing a fairly deep dive on the business so that you can prepare a document that summarizes all those things. It summarizes the opportunities facing the business. It summarizes the risks, summarizes the industry. And so, you know, I really enjoyed that. It was an opportunity to... Um, get exposure to a diverse set of industries to really think, you know, analytically about the, the industries and the risks, work with a bunch of different people, even at the senior level. Uh, on the M&A side, very similar. You know, you're engaged by a firm to help them, you know, troubleshoot and look at risks and opportunities and paper a deal and, and negotiate and get a transaction done. So um, I think that training was really relevant uh, to what I've done at Clark and at Seafort. Um, you know, one of the reasons why I left the practice of law to, to go into direct investments was that it was rewarding and having, you know, a variety of industries and businesses was, was really interesting, but you're never around to see how the story ends. So you, you participate in the capital raising, you don't get to see how they deploy those funds, uh, you, you negotiate the transaction, you never get to see how the integration goes and what happens next. And so um, by transitioning into direct investments, I had an opportunity to take a broader role and to be, you know, in, in responsible for investment decisions and accountable for investment decisions and to stick with, say, the story, you know, from finish to end, from, from start to finish. So as uh, CEO of Clark uh, Inc., you had the opportunity to work closely with, with one of the region's more aggressive entrepreneurs, George Amorian. Um, what did you learn from that experience, Rob? I learned a ton. So, you know, I joined as general counsel. I, I um, sort of transitioned to chief operating officer and ultimately to president, as, as you said, Don. Um, you know, it was an environment where there was lots going on. You know, there, it was a very dynamic uh, company. They were making lots of investments. Some of those businesses had challenges. Lots of them had opportunities, you know, and, and I got an opportunity at a relatively young age to take on a lot of responsibility. Um, so working with George was excellent. I mean, he's one of the brighter, uh, harder working guys you'll ever meet in your life. So I learned a lot from him and from from uh, that opportunity. The board was also great. You know, had some real uh, top uh, entrepreneurs from the region on the board. So including, you know, John Risley and others. So um, that was a formative experience. And, you know, it, was a, it wasn't an easy transition to go from advising to, to being a principal in the investment role. But I think, you know, um, those years that I spent at Clark were uh, tremendous in terms of development and learning. 
Uh, I've known George since the days when he first started. He, I think he was building uh, apartment buildings in uh, Lower Sackville at the time, so that goes back a long time. But you know, he had, can you talk a little bit about? He's got a what? What is what was his strategy at, at Clark? He he looked for undervalued uh, uh, companies, obviously, and 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 tried to uh, turn them around, right? Yeah, I mean, he, 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 I think he had a number of strategies that he would have employed, but that was w- one of the principal ones. So I think he, he looks for opportunities, is a bit of a contrarian. I think he's not afraid to take measured risk. He's very intelligent, as I said, so he can absorb a lot of information. Um, a lot of the businesses that we were invested in at the time were income funds. So these are businesses that were predominantly held by retail investors. Um, you know, one of the theses that he had, I think, was that retail investors tend to overreact when there's a distribution cut or, or suspend, you know, or, or a reduction in the distribution that these uh, structures were paying. And so it was an opportunity to go in and, and buy at, at a good price. And so a lot of the businesses that we held were relatively small public companies, um, many of which that were, you know, experiencing a bit of turbulence. So that certainly added to the learning opportunities and to the to the pressure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now you co-founded uh, Seafort Capital, a private equity firm in 2012. It must just seem like yesterday for you, I'm sure. Can you take us through the history of the founding of, the, of that company, particularly why you saw an opportunity for a regionally based investment company? Yeah, I'm happy to. So um, there are a lot of great things about being a public company. You can access the public markets. You know, it, it's great for issuing shares if you need to as, as part of a transaction. It gives you some profile. Uh, but there are a lot of things that aren't ideal. You know, you're an open book to your suppliers and your customers, your competitors. It's a lot of governance. There's a cost associated with the, the compliance burden. So, um, you know, it occurred to me that the things that I liked most about being at an investment company were the things that had nothing to do with being public. Uh, and so uh, had the idea of setting up a private uh, firm. One of the things I noticed was that there was a huge demographic shift going on in Canada, the aging entrepreneurial class. There were a lot of businesses, small and medium sized that I knew were going to be available for sale in the coming years. And that trend has continued. We'll, we can talk about that. But um, so I had, you know, background and experience um, what I really needed was capital partners to come in and support because I didn't have the, the means uh, on my own to make all these investments. Uh, over the course of my time at Clark, I became friends with Scott Bryson, who at the time was a member of parliament. And so I would, from time to time, bounce ideas off him. I said, look, I think, and it wasn't just a regional opportunity. It was a national opportunity. You know, the, these right. businesses existed across Canada, uh, but I had raised a family here in Atlanta, Canada, I had put roots down. So my preference would have been to stay in Atlantic Canada, but I would have been willing if I needed to, to, to move to other parts of the country to set this up. I had a discussion with Scott and he, he had great relationships with lots of people, you know, throughout the province and throughout the country, but he, he was able to connect me with uh, two families who became principal investors in Seaford and found, you know, uh, foundational investors in Seaford. That was Sobeys and McCain's. So Scott and I went, uh, we sat down with Donald Sobey and Rob Sobey and with Scott McCain in separate meetings. And I was able to pitch them in this idea. And I think they were excited for a bunch of reasons. I think, you know, I put some fairly compelling evidence on the table that suggested there really was an opportunity. One of the benefits of being public was you could point to your track record so they could see that sort of I did have some experience that was relevant in this space. And I think the idea of building something in Atlantic Canada was interesting for both of them. 
So both families, I mean, they had a lot of respect for each other. To my knowledge, they hadn't worked together on a, on a business venture before, but they were excited to do that. And, and I think they knew they contribute more than just capital. They could provide advice and support. And, and so uh, that's how we got rolling. We started in uh, spring of 2012. Yeah, so we hope to have both Rob and uh, Scott on our podcast in the in the near future. But uh, are there? I just wanted to ask you: Are there other com- companies like yours? I'm not aware of any, but are there others in the region that are doing the same thing? Uh, there are. Uh, you know, a lot of them. It's typical of the region. You've got uh, wealthy families that are fairly private that are quite successful, and so there are families that are doing what we're doing. Uh, they're maybe not looking for third-party investors. And so for that reason, they tend to be a little more quiet. The one that's Great. probably most public would be Founders East. So this is um, Colin McDonald's um, private family Great. enterprise, Handmac Capital. They started a, a fund. Uh, I don't. I think it's private, so I don't think a lot of the particulars are in the public domain, but I think there's other prominent families invested alongside them. I think... Um, Jim Spatz and and uh, the Steele family may be invested. Okay, that's that's interesting. Thanks for that. So you talk about Sobies and McCain's. Do you have other key investors? So in our in our first uh, structure, so what we came out with in 2012, it was Sobies and McCain's were the principal sources of capital. The management team. So there's three partners in Seafort: me, Matt Towns, and Stephen Denton. And those two gentlemen were uh, part of the investment team at Clark. So when I set up Seaford, uh, they came over and joined me at that time. All of us invested. Now, we don't have the means that those two families have, but for us, it was a very meaningful investment. And Scott Bryson and his partner, Max St. Pierre, were investors. So that's how we got started. The, the goal was always uh, to build a successful track record, to build a platform that we could scale and then bring in new investors. And so more recently, you know, and by that, I mean last year, early last year, we closed a new fund. Uh, which which we'll talk about, I'm sure. But in that fund, we've got um, a fairly large number of institutional and high net worth investors. So, you know, the founding investors in Seafort uh, represent about 20% of the capital of the new fund. The balance comes from uh, banks, from pension fund plans, uh, from credit unions, from other institutional investors, and then from wealthy families and individuals from every region of Canada. So you promote your firm as being focused on growth and partnering with proven operators to grow strong Canadian companies. You've been uh, around now for over a decade. Uh, how has the company evolved since its founding? Have you refined your approach to investing? We, we have evolved. Uh, like, like most firms, we've grown. Um, you know, if, if you were to look at how we make investments now to, compared to how we made them 10 or 11 years ago, I would say we've got more structure. We're using more tools. So when we started, it was Matt, Stephen, and me, and we were, um, you know, using approaches that were familiar to us. But we, you know, we really had um, a very focused approach. We, we rolled up our sleeves, did almost all the work ourselves as we've grown. So we've got 10 full-time employees here in our office in Halifax now. You know, at any given time, we might have two or three additional students helping us out. So what that means is we've got more arms and legs, more perspective. We've got more tools. You know, we've tried to keep current in terms of our use of technology and other things. So the strategies that we employ, you know, the, the tools that we use are, I would say, more developed, more refined. Uh, we've got more of a systematic approach, but we're really looking for the same types of opportunities. So it's a question of how do you get to that, you know, investable opportunity. Once you get there, 
it tends to be a similar opportunity. So the structure is something that's interesting to us. It's either a growth opportunity or a succession event. It's an industry that we're excited about. And most importantly, it's operating partners that we trust that we think are competent and, and engaged. Can you uh, describe uh, what you would consider to be an ideal investment opportunity from C4's perspective in terms of perhaps the equity share that you're looking for, or the size and type of business that you're looking to make an investment in? Yeah, happy to do that. So we're majority investors. So that means that we, you know, when we make an investment in a firm, we take more than 50% interest in the firm. And we're careful not to use the word control because uh, we have a great relationship with our operating partners. Uh, before we even get started, we'll negotiate and sign a shareholders agreement. So it delineates who's responsible for what. And it's very helpful for us. You know, we need strong management teams. We need strong operating partners and people that are really experienced, that are capable, don't like to be told what to do, especially when they're industry experts and we're not. So um, we'll set up an important uh, set of criteria. There's some things that we want to be involved in. If you're changing your auditor, if you're changing your bank, if you're doing a large acquisition, then we need to be consulted and, and we expect to have a voice in that. When it comes to day-to-day -day operations, you know, they're, they're accountable. Management's accountable for, uh, you know, their performance compared to a budget, but we're not telling them how to be successful and how to grow the business. We're, we're providing support and advice. So um, we always want to have more than 50%. We want strong operating partners owning the balance of the equity, and that can be anywhere from 49 to you know 5% of the equity, something that's meaningful for them. That gives them the opportunity to participate in the success of the, of the business. In terms of the size of the business, we say up to $15 million of EBITDA. So that's eating earnings before interest, taxes, and depreciation. Um, you know, really where we're most focused is in that four to eight, four to $10 million EBITDA range. So still fairly large businesses, uh, but not, you know, not nearly large enough to attract the attention of the larger private equity firms based in Toronto, New York, Vancouver. Uh, in terms of industries, we're quite open-minded. So we have a history in, of investing in, you know, fairly industrial businesses, so specialty manufacturing, value-added distribution, equipment service, business services. Um, but more recently, we've been focused on opportunities in the healthcare space. So we've added some talent and some expertise in-house to help us evaluate those opportunities. But, you know, we're, we're pretty industry agnostic. Again, if it's an area that we think has got growth potential, industry that we think is going to thrive over the next five to 10 years, then we're typically quite open-minded. Are there any businesses or industries that are out of scope or you, it's, uh, it's across the board? Uh, there, there are some situations and some industries that we would shy away from. So, you know, as you might expect from what I've already said, we're not interested in startups. That's a different skill set, different risk profile, and we're really not set up for businesses that don't have a history of earnings. Um, businesses that are highly specialized that we're not familiar with, unless we can really add some bench strength and, and some resources to help us understand a business, then we would be challenged. Uh, so for example, software. Software businesses are wonderful. They're very scalable. The cash flow features are, are excellent, um, but it, very technical. And for us to go in and try to size up whether a software business is well situated and whether their you know IP is is uh, of the highest value and, and has a defensible you know whether they've got defensible legal rights to that technology is difficult for us. So that's an example of an industry that we like, but uh, we would be reluctant if we participated in a process and we're ultimately successful in negotiating a deal, we would wonder whether, you know, we're 
seeing that business correctly. You know, you're competing against people that are experts in that space and you're trying to, you know, price a price a business based on your understanding. So um, things like that that are highly technical, we would shy away from. Um, oil and gas production, mining, direct mining businesses, you know, we, we would invest in businesses that support those industries, but not in those industries themselves. Um, pure play real estate, we wouldn't invest in that. Again, that's something that attracts a lot of capital, people that are experts in that industry, and, and that, that's not where our area of expertise lies. So, so when I started in the 1990s, there were a lot of um, uh, Atlantic Canadian-based businesses or owned businesses that the firms would rather bootstrap growth rather than take on external capital. Of course, we're historically known in this region for not having a lot of publicly traded companies. Um, is that changing? And, and even since you've started your business in 2012, are, are, are more firms now, because of the age of the entrepreneurs and other factors, more willing to give up uh, 50% or more of their equity? Um, in these sort of really interesting businesses in this four to 10 EBITDA range? Uh, great question. I, I've been active uh, in, in this in investment space in Atlanta, Canada since 2005 and more broadly in Canada since that time as well. And I have noticed an evolution. So I think, um, and I think Atlanta, Canada is maybe a little bit behind on some trends, but certainly keeping pace with the rest of Canada. I think business owners and entrepreneurs, if you go back 10 or 15 years, were a little bit suspicious of financial investors. You know, who are these people? They don't understand our industry. Why are they looking to take an investment? Can I trust them as partners? And I think as an industry, um, the private equity space has done a reasonably good job demonstrating success. So, you know, these are people that are good, hardworking people. They're trying to understand industries. They've got capital to deploy. So they're trying to make good investments uh, for their ultimate investors. And so it, it tends to happen through experience. So if you have got a friend that you know through the golf club or you've got a cousin or somebody that's had some exposure to private equity, if that's been favorable or at least not hostile, then people's minds start to open to it. And I would say, you know, the approaches that we've made, and we do this with frequency, you know, if we see an industry that we like, if there's a business that we think is interesting, we think there might be an opportunity for us to partner, we reach out. You know, the response that we've had in the last couple of years, I would say is much more open than it was many years ago. So people understand that this is a real part of the capital markets, that it's not a racket, you know, it's not a scam, it's not someone trying to trick you out of your business, it's a partner that if there's an alignment there can really provide some value and help you a, get some liquidity, but more importantly, B, grow the business that you're so proud of and help you get to a, you know, a, a new level of success and a new level of wealth, hopefully. So I think attitudes have changed. I think they're still changing. Um, you know, there's been some conferences. I think um, I saw you at the ACG event, Don. There's another event that happens annually here in, in Halifax called the Business Transitions Forum. And so it's an mm -hmm. opportunity for people to come together and learn you know, about uh, some trends in the industry, you know, see from, see what the, you know, the brokers and the lawyers and the accountants are saying about transactions and, you know, the take up rate and that's been pretty good. So I think it's good and it's improving and that's for everyone's benefit. You know, they have an active capital market where people um, are thoughtful about how to grow their business and ultimately how to sell their business. It's good for business owners and it's good for the, it's good for the uh, local capital markets. Can I just jump in and ask you quickly, um, are you looking for growth-focused firms or, or are you willing to buy firms in mature markets that don't have a lot of growth potential but generate good cash flow? You know, it would typically be growth opportunities. So, you know, what we need to do ultimately, we target a 20% plus return. 
And so for us, you know, there's lots of ways to get to that outcome. Um, the, the, the best way is to grow the business and to improve it. And we can talk about that in a little bit, but that's been our history. You know, we've invested in some businesses that have been pretty stable and we've gotten cash flow out of those businesses, but it hasn't, those returns for us haven't matched the returns where we're able to grow the business. So typically we're looking for industries that are well positioned and for companies that can execute on a growth plan. Rob, you mentioned the uh, Association of Growth Companies and uh, Atlantic Conference that you recently spoke at as well. <laughs> it drew, I think, about 170, 75 interested investors, not just from the region, but from outside the region, and I think also the states, if I'm not mistaken. Are, are you seeing increasing interest in the region from outside investors? Yes, I, I am. I think that's been a trend. I think the more pronounced trend, though, has been what we just discussed a few minutes ago, which is an increased openness from from local business owners and 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 uh, you know market intermediaries to uh, a broader set of potential capital partners. So, um, you know, the Canadian private equity market is evolving. We've made great strides in, in in the last several years. I think we've always been a little bit behind the U.S. and a little bit behind Europe. And so if you're uh, a general partner at a private equity firm in the U.S., it's a very competitive environment. And, you know, finding that hidden gem, that business that needs a partner that's not already speaking with three or four private equity firms is very challenging. If you come to Canada or if you come to Atlantic Canada, your chances of engaging in that kind of discussion and finding a really good opportunity, I think, are better just because, frankly, there aren't as many people here looking for deals. There's, there's quite right. a few, but it's not like... Right some of the really well sort of um, covered areas of the US and Europe. So I think that the, that openness, that interest has been there for many years from people from outside of the region or outside of the country. I think what they're finding now perhaps is that they're getting more traction, you know? Um, right. And so that's probably supporting, you know, more follow-on visits, more follow-on interest. Yeah. Are there sectors that seem to be drawing more interest in the region than others from outside investors right now? You know, I think um, financial investors are looking for returns. And so, um, you know, you'll find people that have expertise in pretty much every given vertical or industry. I think the things that we're noticing now are the, the things that we do well in Atlantic Canada or that we're well positioned for will always attract interest. So recently, and, and even at that ACG event, um, there's been interest in some of the renewables projects that are happening in, in Atlantic Canada. I think Halifax is a growing market. So businesses that are well positioned to service, you know, the growing population in Halifax and in the region. So I think the trends that people are looking for are the same trends that they would look for outside of the region. But, you know, to the extent that there's any real areas of focus, it'll be the things that are expected to drive the economic growth in the region for the next several years. And I think renewables is, is an example of that. Right. Access to capital has always been a bit of a, an issue in our region. Uh, I wanted to ask you, what needs to be done to attract further capital investment uh, to Atlantic Canada, in your opinion? Well, I think, honestly, um, we're on the right path. You know, if you look at the venture capital space, which is separate from private equity, but, you know, we've got Sandpiper, which is a, a nascent firm that's doing very well here. They've got an interesting thesis. They're great people. I know them very well. We support them. Um, uh, I mentioned Founders East, you've got C4 Capital. 
And what we're doing is we're taking capital not only from the region, but also from outside of the region and building, you know, the ecosystem. So if you wind the clock back 15 years, if one of the institutional investors in Halifax wanted to invest in what they call alternatives, which is could be venture capital or could be private equity, they would engage a consultant from Toronto and, and they would say, you know, do you guys know of any opportunities that consultant would first think of people that he golfs with at his golf club in Rosedale. And those would be, you know, and so you're paying a consultant to help you pick a, an asset manager in Toronto. That person, when they do a transaction, engages the lawyers and the accountants and others that probably golf at that same club. And so you have this unfortunate situation where the capital here is really supporting the financial markets or the, you know, the um, ecosystem in a different geography. What we're seeing now is institutional investors, high net worth investors from Atlantic Canada and from outside of the region are investing capital with Sandpiper, with Seafort, with others. And we're doing deals here and across Canada. Uh, we're engaging local professionals, whether it's accountants or lawyers or, or consultants to help us get those deals done. And you're building the expertise and the momentum. And so, you know, we look here first. We, we do look across Canada. But to the extent we, we have the opportunity to do a good deal in Atlantic Canada, that's our first choice. And what that means is that if you're a business owner in Atlantic Canada, you've got a couple of strong incumbents that are here that live here that would like to do business with you, partner with you, pump capital into your business. And so, you know, our most recent investment a company called Parts for Trucks based in Dartmouth, um, great young management team. They wanted to build a national platform. And so, you know, very shortly after we made our investment, and of course, all the people that helped us with that deal were local lawyers and accountants and advisors. Um, we did a large transaction in Western Canada, a company based in Calgary. And so now we're investing in technology. We're adding senior executive positions in Dartmouth, growing the business. So I think, you know, if we continue to see businesses succeed and thrive in the capital market space in Atlantic Canada, it's good for the ecosystem. It's good for advisors. Uh, but it's also good for business owners because they know they've got good partners here at home that they can count on to to uh, help them with a succession plan or a growth event if necessary. Rob, uh, just, a, just as an interesting aside, uh, you know, I think I told you this, Rob, before. I actually had a small role in the integration of fleet brake and parts for trucks, which I found really, really interesting. Well, that's a great example, Don. I wasn't going to raise that if, if you didn't because I didn't want to sort of uh, – um, mm -hmm talk out of school, but you know, you, you're an example of someone you helped us with market research and with some polling and with some analysis and consulting. And we use that advice to help us come up with a, you know, an integration plan for the business. I can guarantee you that well, I can't guarantee you, but I suspect you may not have gotten that call if it was TorqueWest or, you know, a firm based in Toronto because they'll, they, they look out yeah, for, uh, for people sure. in their own region. Right. So that's a great yeah. example of, and, and we'd love to use you for future deals. Well, that's very good to hear. <laughs> uh, Rob, uh, it's not on the script here, but I wanted to ask you, one of the things that's always bugged me is the fact that all of the, almost all of the public sort of pension monies, Vescor and others in the region are not invested here. There's almost nothing invested here. I'm not going to ask you to, to comment specifically on Vescor, but you know, the, all of their money's put to work in other countries um, because they say there's no investment opportunities in their own province. So all of the teachers, pensions and nurses and everything else, that money's not invested here. Do you think because of this new capacity this, that's being uh, developed here in Atlantic Canada, do you think some of that money at least will start to find its way 
into investments at home, or do you think that's uh, it's better to try and draw money from outside rather than try to get the public pensions to put some of their money to work here in, in the region? It's a great question. I think, David, we need to earn that right. So we shouldn't expect, I should never expect to get a single dollar from any institutional investor in Atlantic Canada because we're based in Atlantic Canada. Um, they're fiduciaries. They have to deploy that capital on behalf of their pensioners and their claimants. And so they do that, I think, very thoughtfully. But if we can get to the point where we can say, you know, look at our performance compared to the peer group, if they're willing to give us a list of other institution of other private equity firms that they're invested in, then we should um, embrace the scrutiny of being stacked up against them. And if we can perform better, then I think we should expect to have capital allocated to us. I think, um, and I think the confidence and the competence of institutional investors in Canada is improving. So we've seen some recent changes. Uh, Steve Mahoney's a chief investment officer of, of Nova Scotia uh, pension plan coming in from, you know, a big prominent firm in Toronto. Um, so I think, you know, the, and, and they've got great talent. So I think if, if we can earn um, the ability to have that uh, investment considered with our returns and with our positioning, then and we should be considered. They haven't said this, none of this has said this to me, but I think there's always a bit of a concern it's, and it's kind of perverse in some ways, but in, in Nova Scotia, I think if you were to invest in a local firm and it went poorly, people would say, well, why did, why did you invest in that firm? Do you know those guys? Like, why would you have selected them? I think they would ironically face less scrutiny if they invested in a firm in Toronto or New York and it didn't go well. So I'm sure that weighs on them. You know, just a suggestion that, you know, they, they invested in a local firm. Um, for reasons unrelated to pure performance. So that's speculation on my part. But I do think in time, if we continue to grow, if we continue to generate strong returns, I think we'll get a good fair look from uh, local pensions and others. I think that's a good point, except it's just a little annoying that the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan has more money invested down here than our own our own investors. But yeah, I take your point absolutely about, about uh, if something goes wrong in an investment in Australia, there's less scrutiny than if it goes wrong in Moncton. So that's a really good point. Uh, before we go to the next question, did, did you mention earlier healthcare is one of your target sectors? Yeah. So um, right now, and, and this has been a point of stress for us, we're trying to get a deal done this month and it's always challenging. The last, <laughs> the last mile is, uh, is the most painful, but um so we're looking at the prosthetics and braces and orthotic space. And I think we've said that publicly before. It's an example of something that we think is very well positioned and benefits from some core demographics. So people are active later in life. They're willing to invest in things that enhance their quality of life. We've got some unfortunate incidents with diabetes and other things where it makes prosthetics a requirement. So when we look at how that industry is growing, um, we think it's very well positioned. It's very fragmented. So in the U.S., there's been a couple of consolidators that have gone around and sort of consolidated that space. In Canada, we haven't seen that yet. So if you think of other industries like dental, you know, like veterinarian, like physiotherapy, there's been some consolidation. And you can probably walk by a local service provider that's been bought up by one of those big consolidators. So that's an example of the space. You know, we brought on an expert to help us understand the industry we're hoping to get going in that space this month, but um, for us, it's a bit of a departure. You know, we're used to fairly industrial businesses. If you look at our portfolio, you'll see it's a fairly, you know, blue collar uh, group of businesses. This for us is is different, but I think we've spent enough time uh, getting up the learning curve that we're well positioned to support a business grow in that industry, but we haven't been able to close the deal yet. 
So you talked earlier about your second capital fund um, uh, raised nearly two hundred million for further investment. Uh, how challenging has it been to raise that uh, type of money? You know, um, fundraising is is not my strength, and it's not my passion. <laughs> if I'm honest, I mean, I really like working with businesses on growth plans. You know, once the capital is deployed, I, I I thoroughly enjoy getting to know the business and sort of being there by their side as the, as they sort of navigate a growth plan. Um, fundraising, you need to have very thick skin. So I think I may be a little bit too vain for fundraising because you get lots of direct uh, feedback, and much of it's not all that positive. Um, but but it's it's a volume game, so you have to get out there. You know, we had very strong returns in our first fund, so we've made some good investments. That's the most important factor, I think. Um, if you've demonstrated an ability to, you know, invest capital and generate returns, then that's the most important thing. After that, it becomes whether they accept your strategy, whether they like the makeup of your of your team. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of how many presentations we did, but we did, you know, more than 200, and and so that um, that was a grind. Uh, but we got to meet some really nice people. Um, many of them invested, even the ones that didn't, you know, we had great conversations. So I don't want to sort of make it sound too arduous, but, uh, you know, fundraising becomes a bit redundant. You know, you're saying the same thing. It's the same investor presentation. You get, tend to get the same questions. So it just becomes a little bit tiring at a certain point, but it's a very important part of, of the private equity, uh, you know, process. So we had to get good at it. About 20 years ago, the federal government, um, invested or supported setting up these capital pools in Atlanta, Canada. I think they did it across the country, but certainly here. And I remember the one specifically in Moncton that they, they lined up a whole bunch of local investors, but it turned out they were completely risk averse. They didn't want to do anything risky at all. So what was the point? I guess the question for you is when you are raising capital from these investors, do they understand the level of risk that's required and, and, and are they accepting of that risk? I think they are. I mean, these are sophisticated investors. We, we, I think, do a good job of disclosing the opportunity and the risk of investing in our fund. Um, we, we try to be very uh, engaged with them to provide them regular quarterly updates and, and give them some sense for our strategy and our holdings and how they're doing. So, you know, one of the things that helps us, I think, is the way that private equity firms are structured. And you guys may know this, but we really don't make very much money at all unless our investors get a good return. So private equity firm partners and, 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 you know, senior managers do well based on the bonus payment that's typically referred to as the carry. And so if we don't earn 10, uh, sorry, 8% annualized uh, net of all fees, then we don't get any carry. And so I think our investors understand, you know, when I make a commitment to a fund, it's a fairly long-term commitment. I'm going to spend all of my time and energy for the next five to seven years um, trying to generate a good return for our investor and a, and a bonus carry payment for myself. And if those investors don't get more than 8% net, then we don't get anything, Matt, Stephen, and I. So I think if there's a reasonable sharing of the risk there. So we do uh, take on some risk. It's not the same level of risk as venture capital. So venture capital, you'll have home runs and you like uh, some of the investments we've seen in the region, Radian 6 and others, and you'll have some that flame out and end up with no return at all. Uh, we, we tend to be more uh, tightly banded. So, you know, th there are, of course, some some investments that go really poorly, but ten tendency is to have a narrow range of outcomes. You know, hopefully we exceed that return threshold and and uh, and generate a, a return for ourselves. But if, if, if things go 
poorly for investors, they go very poorly for us as well. We wanted to ask you a few questions around what business owners and entrepreneurs should be thinking about when they're looking at taking on capital like yours. You recently presented a very useful and compelling talk at the uh, Nova Scotia Regional Enterprise Network conference called Should I Sell or Should I Grow? The, president, the presentation was an excellent overview uh, for these business owners. Um, I guess the first question for you is around understanding market value of their businesses. So I think some owners think they're um, business is, you know, wildly more valuable than it really is. Some probably have no idea, but what has your experience been dealing with business owners trying to come to an agreement around business value? So I think it, I mean, um, one of the best pieces of advice I can give a business owner is to talk to someone that has some expertise in, in valuation. So sometimes that could be someone on your team. If you've got a strong finance person that can give you help with that, if they've got transactions experience, if not your accountant uh, or someone that's a, you know, a business broker might be able to give you some support. What sometimes happens is that people get focused on their retirement goal. And I think I spoke with Don about this, but if you figure, you know, I, $8 million is what I'd love to have for retirement. I can buy a place south. I can do all these things. Then you start to convince yourself that your business is worth $8 million, right? And that retirement goal isn't necessarily connected to the value of your business. So you need to be thinking about the cash flows and the integrity of the business and the industry that you're in. And that's something that an expert can help you with. Um, but, but once people get a bit of advice, I've found that people tend to be fairly reasonable. Um, you know, what we're often looking for is some ongoing investment or commitment. And if it's not from that individual, if that person really wants to retire and exit the business, <clears throat> we need to have a conversation about who else in the company or who else in the industry might partner with us. And so once you have uh, you know, a path to a succession event where we can be big investors in the business, but not the only investors in the business, if, if they have that missing piece, either they're willing to help us or someone else that they've identified can help us, then we can get to a you know, high level um, agreement on valuation reasonably quickly. Businesses, as you mentioned earlier, are typically evaluated on their free cash flows or EBITDAs and an appropriate multiple applied to that cash flow. Uh, your advice to get um, a, a business uh, value, valued is a good one, I think. Uh, let, let's talk about the multiples currently possible to value a business. Uh, in your presentation, you indicated larger companies trade at higher valuation multiples. Can you provide us with how with how the multiples differ by size of company and why size matters? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, when we look at a business, um, we're focused on what our expected return is. And we want to have a very good chance of getting at or above 20% return on our equity investment. So that's not a that you know the once you layer in a bit of debt that's more achievable than it sounds like that's a very high target but i think that's what our target is and so um that can boil down to a multiple but a multiple is really a shorthand and you know often when you're talking with people that you know that sold their business or people that are active in the industry they'll talk a lot about ebitda multiples ebitda multiples really vary across industries so what's most important for any business and business owners would know this is how much cash can you get out of the business on an annual basis and so if your business requires a lot of capital to continue to operate, something like a crane business, which we're invested in, you know, you need to maintain your fleet. You need to add cranes and turn cranes over all the time. Um, those businesses that are very capital intensive tend to attract a lower multiple just because you need to preserve capital to um, maintain it and to operate the business. 
uh, businesses that have very strong cash flow features can trade for a higher multiple because you're getting more cash out of that business on, on a regular basis. Um, businesses that have lots of growth potential tend to trade at a higher price because people are looking forward. They're not looking back. So if you buy a business, you're not buying the history, you're buying the future, right? So if you get a business that's very well positioned for growth. So, you know, those are two important things to consider. How much capital does my business consume? What are my growth prospects? But beyond that, I think, you know, there are some even more basic dynamics at work. And I think this is part of what you alluded to, Don. Um, the larger, the number of small and medium-sized businesses in Canada is very large. So there's a huge number of small and medium-sized businesses, um, relatively small number of large businesses, even though it doesn't seem like that sometimes. And the people that are looking to buy businesses, so firms that are in the private equity space like C4 are for the most part looking for large businesses. So we're a bit of an anomaly. You talk about us having you know, $189 million of capital to deploy. That sounds like a lot, but it's really in the context of the industry, a tiny fund. You know, most funds are a billion and a half or two billion. So they're looking to write large checks. They can't, you know, really manage or support any more than eight or 10 investments. So what that means is that they're really limited to larger companies. So you have a bit of a, a, a sort of a mismatch in the supply and demand of businesses. Large businesses are relatively scarce and they're in high demand. Small businesses are relatively common and their uh, demand for them is not quite as high. And so if you manage to grow your business and you expand the earnings, what you'll do is you'll attract a higher uh, degree of interest from financial firms like C Ford and others. So very difficult if you've got a small business that's making $300,000 in EBITDA. I mean, you're part of a very large set of businesses and, and the number of people that want to buy those businesses are small. So that's one factor. The other is um, I talked about how a broker can help, you know, someone that's got experience selling businesses can add a lot of value. It's sort of like a really good real estate agent. They can tell you how to stage your business, what, you know, what things to do to make it look more marketable, who to call, how to put it out there into the, into the universe. And in some ways it's a lot harder to sell a business than it is to sell a house. So getting a good business uh, broker or an advisor to help you sell a business can really attract a lot more interest and can drive the price up. But those advisors tend to be paid like real estate agents, a percentage of the purchase price. Right. So they tend to gravitate again towards the larger businesses, right? So that that's another factor is, is the ability to attract a good broker and, and run a process. Um, so, but then there's, you know, one of the things that I think you're alluding to in the question is, is there a difference in quality in, in small, large businesses? I think often there is. Right, right. Tell us what the difference is between a strategic buyer and a financial buyer for those that, who may be listening, thinking about, uh, you know, doing something with their business. Yeah, so, uh, and this is an important thing for a business owner to consider because when you think about um, the emotion that's associated with selling a business, uh, it, it's significant. So people build their businesses, they become very close to all the stakeholders, you know, close with the employees and the suppliers and the customers. And so um, getting the top price for your business is always the most important consideration, but people also care about what happens after they sell their business. And so understanding who the likely buyers might be and what they, what their plans might be is important. Um, when you talk about a strategic buyer, typically that's someone else in the industry. So it's often a larger competitor. 
you know, if you're a small um, equipment rental business, for example, McFarland's was a small construction equipment rental business based in Atlantic Canada. Um, they sold to Sunbelt, which is a large mm-hmm. multinational. The public company, Ashton, is a, it's actually based in the UK, but they're predominantly a U.S. equipment rental business. And so when that business sold, all the equipment got painted a different color, all the logos and all the signs changed. And so that brand went away. So a strategic buyer is usually someone that's going to integrate your business with their business. And so to the extent that you're focused on your legacy, the brand, things that are unique about the business, those are often in jeopardy of being absorbed into a larger entity, typically. A financial buyer is typically someone more like C4. So this might be their first investment in the industry, but they're going to come in, they're going to work with the business as it exists. So typically the brand stays because that's part of what they're paying for. Um, typically the people stay, they might add people actually to grow the business. And so it's just a different um, outcome for the business. It's, it's instead of having the business be absorbed into a larger business, it's often um, elevated. And, and now you may become the strategic buyer that's going out and absorbing other smaller businesses if you've got a financial investor. Can you tell us the advantages and disadvantages associated with a management buyout? Maybe define that for our listeners too. Yeah, management buyout is common uh, in, in smaller firms and it makes a lot of sense. So if, if you've got a business that you've grown, maybe you own it or your family owns it um, and you've got a strong management team, uh, it, it may be worth considering whether those managers want to invest in the business and buy it from you. And so um, it gives you an opportunity to reward people that have been long serving employees. It gives you an opportunity to take some cash off the table. Um, transaction costs are typically low because when a, when a new buyer comes in, a lot of the time and money that they spend is focused on understanding the business. So when you're dealing with your own management team, uh, obviously their ability to understand the business is, is enhanced by their experience working there and running the business. So it can be a great solution. Um, but it, there, there are a lot of hazards. And, you know, one of the biggest concerns I would have as a business owner is um, you put yourself in a very vulnerable position once you open that dialogue. So a lot of um, managers that are not entrepreneurs aren't used to putting their own capital at risk. And so my fear would be, okay, these people want to be the shareholders of the company, but they really don't want to invest a lot of their own capital. They want me to sort of take a vendor note back and take all. And if you do that, if they're not investing any real equity capital, then as a business owner, you've got really none of the upside and all the downside. So if the business fails, you don't really get, if they you know take the business in a different direction and it fails, you're likely not going to get payment for that company. But if it's a roaring success and you, you participate in that risk, but you've assigned the shares to them, then sort of it's, it's a bit asymmetrical in that way. Then it's sort of a tails they win, you know, heads you lose, right? So um, that's what I would worry about. The other thing I would worry about is, um, you know, if things go poorly, if you're negotiating a deal with a third party, let's say you've got a target that you want to buy and you develop into an acrimonious sort of line of discussion, there's hard feelings you can walk away. Very difficult to walk away from your own management team. Um, so that that is just something to think about. It's rare that things go badly, but they do go badly on occasion in deals. And if, if you started a fight with your own management team, the risk is that some of them leave or, or the performance declines. If you're taking that approach, what I would suggest is 
um, try to get a sponsor or someone with capital to support the management team. So that really is a true buyout so that, you know, you're not keeping an inordinate amount of risk in the business. Someone else is coming in to provide them with capital. And, and if that's the case, if they really have the, the means to buy the business, then it becomes a much uh, more uh, interesting opportunity for the vendor. So I suspect a number of your projects have been similar to that, right? Where you've kept on the existing management team, but they've taken on more of an equity stake. That's exactly that's exactly what we've done. So we've we've had you know uh, a couple of situations where management has uh, the opportunity and the interest in buying a business, but you know they would like to have someone come in and provide them with capital support, and we've done that in two or three uh, separate instances. Yeah. In your presentation uh, to the REN conference, you talked about the imbalance between the supply and demand for capital. Can you explain a bit? I think you've alluded to that already, but can you explain a little bit that that challenge? Yeah, it, it, it's, it is related to what we talked about earlier. So I think it's, it's uh, typically more difficult for smaller businesses to access capital and to access opportunities uh, than it is for, for larger businesses. And so, you know, if, you, if you've got a, a lot of ideas, if you've got growth opportunities, but your business is relatively small, that's where the imbalance comes in. And if you were to go back to my original presentation, you know, I had to come up with a pitch deck for the Sobeys and for the McCain's. And there's a lot of data around this. Um, you know, it, it's a relatively inefficient part of the market. So if you can get in, if you can really sort through the opportunities, if you can pick the best ones, pay a fair price, a partner with strong managers and grow, then you can do well. Um, you know, at the other end of the market where the businesses are much larger then those inefficiencies don't exist. And the, what that means is those opportunities are harder to find. So I think, um, you know, that that's sort of what I was alluding to. So Rob, we've got a, a few more questions, uh, but uh, we'll get you to answer them quickly, if you don't mind, just to get uh, get a response to them. One is, uh, what are the differentials that lead to higher valuations beyond cash flows themselves? So I talked earlier very briefly about difference in quality based on the size of the business. So as you grow your business, you have the ability to add depth of management. You have the ability to add features that um, give your some your business some resiliency. So one simple simple example is in the freight transportation industry. You know we've got a long history of investing in that space. Safety is paramount. It's very difficult for a small firm to to uh, employ a, 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 an expert in safety. But as they grow and evolve, and as you increase the number of trucks, you can add a safety professional. You can add a full time recruiter. You can add better software to manage your assets. So what I would say is as the business grows, the complexity grows. Um, the systems in the business improve and all those things generate a stronger return on capital employee. And if, and if you get to that point, then the business truly is worth more. Great. And in terms of growing a company, what do you see as the biggest impediments uh, for a business to grow based on what you're seeing? You know, I think if you're thinking about growing your business, the first step is to think about whether the industry that you're in supports growth. And, and not all industries do. So if you're in a large industry that's growing, that's fragmented, then growth is relatively easy and, and spending, you know, nothing's easy, but it's compared to other industries, it's achievable. So if you're spending time and capital growing a business under those circumstances, then I think you, you got a really good chance of creating value. If you're in a mature industry, if the competitive landscape is very hostile, if there's very few uh, spaces or, or, or uh, uh, targets uh, that you can expand into or acquire, then I think you're going to be challenged. So I would say a precondition to any growth is sizing up the industry and determining whether your business is positioned for growth. 
So in the decision matrix you presented at the conference, you outlined a number of considerations for those contemplating either growing or selling. What are those considerations? So the, the, the first consideration was what I just described, a path to growth. So can the industry support growth? I think that's very important. On a more personal level, I think what's your investment horizon? So when you think about your requirement for capital, um, most entrepreneurs or family business owners have a very concentrated uh, investment portfolio. Often it's almost all their wealth is in that one business. So if you need capital out of that business in the next five to 10 years for, for whatever it may be, then I think growth becomes more challenging. Um, you know, what's your desired level of commitment? If you're available to commit all your time and energy to growth and really sort of oversee it because it, it, it involves a lot of risk and it takes a lot of work, then I think uh, growth is a great option. If you really are not going to be committed, then I think um, you should consider selling. What's your level of tolerance for risk? So if you have a high tolerance of risk, if, if you're at that age or at that point in your career when you're willing to let it ride and if things go poorly, you can stick around and, and see, see things through the storm, then I think growth is a good idea. If your tolerance for risk is low, then I would say you should consider selling. And then finally, access to capital. You know, if you're expanding your business, if you're growing, you need capital to support that growth. If things go poorly, you need capital to sustain the business and to sort of get through any rough patches. So if you've got high access to capital, you should be considering growth. If you really don't have good access to capital, then that might be a good, a good indication that you should sell the business. So Rob, uh, venture capital tends to have a pretty defined window in terms of when it wants to get in and when, when it wants to get out. Is private equity the same way or are you, are you in it for the long run as long as you can get your returns? I would say as an industry, uh, it's fairly structured and fairly well-defined. You know, the typical hold cycle is three to five, maybe seven years. Uh, we're a little bit more patient. So because of the nature of our strategy, we're looking at smaller, medium-sized businesses uh, executing on a longer growth strategy. So our new fund has a 12-year term. So we can invest for up to 12 years and we can extend that to 14. So by industry standards, that's quite long. Um, so our, our hold cycle is a little bit longer than normal, but you know, it's typically when you make an investment, you know, you, we like to buy things that we would be happy to hold forever, but the base strategy is to be getting out in, you know, in seven to 10 years. And what does getting out mean IPO or selling to a bigger player or, or what's, what's, what's exit look like? Yeah, we typically like to buy businesses that have multiple paths to liquidity. So what that typically means is a business that would be attractive to a larger strategic buyer. So, so you, you know, you, if you can build something with real mass, then a larger U.S. or a larger Canadian buyer would be interested in integrating with their business. But we also build really solid management teams, good financial reporting systems, so that if, if the right thing is for a larger sponsor to come in, you know, someone like one of those big private equity firms that I mentioned can come in and sort of take the torch from us and, and grow it to the next level, then uh, we want that, uh, that path to be open as well. So last question, looking ahead, uh, you've talked a little bit about some of your opportunities, but what do you see as your best opportunity for growth? You know, this next fund that we've created is really going to be um, a defining experience for me, Matt and Steven. So the three partners have an opportunity that's you know, really compelling. We, we've got um, the support of a large number of sponsors. We've got, I think, a fairly favorable investment environment. So the best thing that we can do is really make some solid investments, uh, grow those businesses, generate strong returns. If we do that, then we'll be very well positioned for a future fund and, and hopefully a slightly larger fund. 
if not, it's going to be a challenge. So, you know, the next three to five years at Seaford are going to be very important. And, and uh, we're very focused on making the most of the opportunity that's in front of us. Rob, thanks for joining us today on the Insights Podcast and providing an overview of C4 Capital and some of the considerations that business owners should be thinking about when they're deciding to grow or sell their business. We we appreciate what you're doing. We appreciate the, the expansion of, of, of options to capital in our region, and we wish you all the best. Thank you very much, David and Don. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Rob. That was a great conversation. You've been listening to the Insights Podcast from the Acadia Broadcasting Corporation. Follow the show and listen to past episodes on your favorite podcast platform, like Apple or Spotify. If you've enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? Don and David will be back next week with another deep dive into some key issues in Atlantic Canada.